Some of you may know that our church, among the many ministries that God allows us to have, we have a ministry that's called 13.2, and it's called 13.2 because it takes after Hebrews 13.2 where it says that we should extend hospitality to strangers because in doing so, we might be receiving angels without knowing it. And uh, in part of that ministry, we network with a lot of different churches and organizations to minister to immigrants on both sides of the border. And uh, in that process, we discovered uh, a pastor in Nuevo Laredo, that's south of the border from Laredo, Texas. Uh, his name is Lorenzo. Pastor Lorenzo oversees three migrant centers where uh, migrants from Central America and other places go while they wait to process their asylum request. And so there they find food, they find shelter, uh, they find a place to reset, refresh, and wait, uh, and also receive God's love, not just in action, but in word. Well, uh, a few days ago, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the cartel kidnapped Pastor Lorenzo. And we quickly got a notice uh, throughout Texas, all those of us that networked together with these ministries to be praying for him uh, as the cartel had taken him and, and his van. They had sent a picture of his van. They had slashed the tires and sent that picture uh, for ransom money. Uh, they, they thought that these shelters that he is overseeing are money-making uh, businesses, and so they wanted money. Uh, they also arrested some of, uh, or kidnapped rather, uh, some of the immigrants, and these immigrants were believers, and so as they were in captivity under the cartel, they were singing hymns and praise songs and praying, and the cartel didn't know what, what to do with that. And so they kept asking Pastor Lorenzo for uh, for money to, to give them a cut of the money he made out of, off the immigrants. And, and he said, I don't charge. We do it for free. He says, nobody does that. Nobody does things for free. And he said, look, look at my phone. If you see any kind of money exchange or request that has to do with my ministry, you can shoot me right now. They looked at his phone. They didn't find any evidence that he was profiting from ministering to the immigrants. And uh, quickly, as people continue to pray, as we continue to pray for him, uh, the, the local authorities who respect him and, and even state authorities who respect him began to mobilize. And, and soon over the place where they were holding him captive, there were helicopters and, and, and there were uh, Mexican army uh, vehicles that were surrounding the place and the cartel began to get nervous and they released Pastor Lorenzo without harming him. In fact, uh, they returned his van and they replaced the tires they had slashed. Amen. That's nothing but the power of prayer. And when Pastor Lorenzo was being interviewed about what had taken place and he was telling them of the exchange he had, uh, you know, people were just uh, admiring his courage. And, and he said, look, we're Christians. We're not supposed to run from the devil. The devil is supposed to run from us. And I thought, what a great testimony of Christian courage. And how important it is that we have testimonies like that. Because I believe that we live in a culture that is overtaken by fear. People are afraid. And sometimes they have a reason to be afraid. They are afraid of massive shootings. People are afraid of, of COVID. People are afraid of diseases. They're afraid of 
of their family values being changed. They're, they're afraid of having the wrong people in government. They're, they're, uh, they're afraid of, of cultural shifts. They're afraid of change. They're afraid of losing something. And, and you talk to people and, and it seems like people in social media and the conversations are just covered with fear. And the question that we must ask ourselves as Christians, as followers of Jesus is, what should we be afraid of? And what should we not be afraid of? And so as we look at the perspective of God, what is it that he wants us to, to pay attention to, to be concerned about? And what is it that we shouldn't so much worry about? So I'd like to invite you to go with me to our text today, which is in Hebrews chapter six, beginning with verse one. We're going to uh, try to cover this whole chapter today, uh, but we'll begin with uh, the first passage, Hebrews chapter six, verse one, and it reads like this. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance, from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment and God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly light, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their laws, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. The Hebrews of the first century to whom this letter is written were facing persecution. Their faith in Christ was costing them. Sometimes the community was shunning them. Sometimes their livelihood was at stake. Sometimes their very lives were in danger. The difference between confessing Caesar is Lord or Jesus is Lord was the difference between life and death often. The possibility of torture, of being thrown in the Roman Colosseum, of being killed for their faith was very real for them. So this retaliation for following Jesus looms so large and the reward seems so remote that I'm sure that you and I, if we had been there at that time, we would ask ourselves, where is God in all of this? Why is Jesus, why has Jesus not returned? He promised he will come back. Where is he? Why are all these promises that we received in him, why don't we see them fulfilled right now? Why are we suffering unjustly? The, the Roman government seems to be winning. Knowing that these were the challenges and the difficulties that his readers were facing, the author writes to them to admonish them. He warns them. He urges them to action and then he encourages them with a promise. So let's talk about that today. The first thing that he does is he warns them of the problem, the real problem. As the fear of persecution looked large and the faith in his promise seemed to wane, Jewish Christians found themselves spiritually stuck. 
They found themselves in a rut. They, they found themselves in spiritual danger. There was this danger of repeating a cycle of basic matters of the Christian faith. The Christian faith begins with repentance from our life of sin. That means turning around toward God, faith in Christ who has died for our sins, showing that faith by the evidence of believer's baptism in that action receiving, in the action of believing, receiving the Holy Spirit and knowing that, that God is in control and that there will be a judgment day. That's the way that you enter the Christian life. That's the way that, that you get initiated in the Christian life, but that's just the beginning. You know, we didn't have graduations too long ago. We, we still see some uh, Facebook posts about people who, who have graduated or their children have graduated from college or, or high school and what a great celebration is. I think the cutest pictures are, are the ones of sixth graders graduating or kindergartners graduating. And I think what, what a great moment that is. And part of the excitement of graduation is that you finished a, a part of your studies and now you're ready to move on to the next thing, right? I don't hear a lot of high schoolers graduating saying, I can't wait to go back to ninth grade. You know, they're looking forward to what's ahead, what's next, what, what they've accomplished is important and, and all, but they need to look forward to what is next, to the next level. One of the dangers that the early church was facing is that they were going back they were recycling through the basics. They, they were staying in things that had been important at the beginning and, and remain important. They're fundamental, but they weren't moving on to what was next. And, and so they faced the danger of regression, of reverting, reverting back to the beginning. For some of them, perhaps it seemed that the Christian life was just sticking to a few basic rules and rituals. Having grown up in Judaism, maybe, maybe they had replaced the rules and the rituals of the Old Testament with, with the rules and the rituals of the New Testament and, and sort of became this rote religion, this, this legalism that they were following. Even worse, some of them were tempted to go back to Judaism. Some of them in the midst of the pressure and the persecution were thinking, I need to go back to the old religion. I need to go back to the way I grew up. The, the, my heritage, my tradition, the, 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 the things that I know best, this newfound faith is dangerous. It's costly. Maybe we should just, we can please God by just going back to the law, following the commandments. And in doing so, they run the danger of rejection. Rejecting Christ and his saving work. If we can go back to the law and please God by obeying the law, then Christ died in vain. Because he died because we couldn't keep the law. He died because we couldn't be good enough. He died because we weren't holy enough, but he's holy. He kept the law and he died for our sins. And so to, to regress, to reject was so serious. It had serious implications and consequences. If they denied Christ, how could they ever be saved? Who, whose death could they rely on? If they had already tasted the heavenly gift of the Holy Spirit, 
And they rejected that which came with Christ. And how could they ever know what God was leading them to do if they had tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age? How could they ever again be saved? How could they ever again experience what Christ had already offered them once and for all? See, the writer of Hebrews wanted to let them know that Christianity is not an in and out religion. You can't go in and out. Christ died once and for all. He doesn't need to die over and over again. We don't need to offer the sacrifice of Jesus time and time again. He, he did it once and once was enough. And when you come to faith in Christ and you trust him in his grace and his salvation, once is enough. It's enough for, for, for him to save you eternally. He gave you the Holy Spirit when you believed and once is enough. You don't need to be rebaptized with the Holy Spirit. You don't need to be resaved. You don't need to, to fall back and come in back in. The Bible says Christ can't die over and over again. You can't go in and out. You, 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 you need to stay and, and move on in your faith. There's a warning for us here today. It's a, it's a danger for us of rejection or regression. Rejection is when we either ignore Christ or we minimize his work. We substitute something or we add something. You know, a lot of people say, yeah, I believe in Christ, but it's Christ and the sacraments. Or it's Christ and the church. Or it's Christ and my good works. Or it's Christ and the constitution. Or it's Christ and, and my heritage. Or it's Christ and my denomination. Anytime you add something to Christ, you're rejecting him. You're saying he's not enough. You're saying he's not sufficient. To add something to Christ is to reject him. Either Christ is Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. And regression is going back to the basics. Regression is when we major in the minors instead of keeping the main thing the main thing. Regression is when we get stuck in the minutia of faith and trivia and doctrine to the extent that we miss what's next, which is we just rehash the same thing over and over again. We spend all of our energy in secondary and tertiary matters. And the scripture tells us that there's a danger of either rejection or regression. And what, what we should do instead of staying there or instead of going back, what we should do is to press on toward maturity. Verse 9, chapter 6. Says, Even though we speak like this, Dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. The writer had spoken firmly. He said, look, you're in danger. Look, what you're considering, what you're thinking about, what's going on is dangerous. And he spoke firmly to them, but now he speaks lovingly. He says, look, there's still hope. It's evident that God is still at work. So this is the second thing that we see here is he urges them to press on, to run with endurance toward maturity. Even though these Jewish Christians, 
that the author addresses may have gotten stuck in the basics. They, they had gotten stuck in, in spiritual kindergarten. There was still hope of progress. Even though some of them had entertained the thought of going back to Judaism, it was evident that God's grace was at work. And the writer says, look, you, you're in danger, but there's hope. I see God at work in your life. I see the grace of God working in your life. You, some of you may have lost hope, but God has not lost you. Some of you may have fallen into a rut, but God will not leave you there. Some of you may have forgotten the promises of God, but God has not forgotten you. So there's good news. There's hope. But you can't stay there. I don't know how many of you have seen the new Top Gun movie, Top Gun Maverick, but... Um, you know, it's 36 years after the first one and, and uh, the second movie. I'm not going to spoil it for you. Don't worry. But I'll say this. The second one is, is based on, on someone who has given 30 years of service to the, to the Navy as a top aviator, Pete Mitchell. And uh, he is testing. Uh, he's a test pilot and he's dodging the advancement in rank uh, that would ground him and uh, because he likes to fly and and, and then he gets this opportunity to train these graduates for a very special mission, a very risky mission, a very difficult mission. And in that process, he realizes that he has to face the ghost of his past and, and the fears that, that have crippled him, that have kept him in the same rank for so long. These graduates that Maverick is supposed to train don't want to stay grounded. They, they, they want to experience new things. They want to go to new heights, but there's risk in that. And so in such a situation, the options are three in my estimation. One is that you stay where you are and do nothing and let the mission fail by lack of action. Or you can engage the mission half prepared and half hearted and risk its success. Or you can engage the mission fully prepared and fully hearted so that there's a chance for success. Well, you had to watch the movie to figure out what happened. But when it comes to the Jewish Christians, they had stayed the course, yes. They had continued to show the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. It was evident that they were saved, that God's grace was at work. They were serving God and his people with love. But what they needed now was to apply diligence. They, they, they needed to, to move on. They had the opportunity now to press on with diligence so that their hope would be fully realized. Did you catch that? The writer of Hebrews says, look, you're standing on a good foundation, but there's a fuller Christian life. There's something beyond what you already know. There are new heights to experience in faith. And listen, there are those who have come before you and they have given you an example. There are those who have come before you and have experienced the Christian life in all its fullness. There are those who have come before you and with faith and patience and endurance have, have gotten to the finish line. So press on. Stay the course. Give it your all. Don't stay behind. Don't lag. But push. Strive. Stretch, you're not alone. 
You're not the first one in this race and you won't be the last one. I love what Eugene Peterson said and, and I've quoted it before and I'll quote it again. He says, discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. That's what it is. Discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. Listen, true discipleship is not just about sound doctrine. Now, sound doctrine is important. Don't get me wrong. We need to have sound doctrine. But true discipleship goes beyond sound doctrine and it goes to obedience. You can believe the right things, but not do the right things. True discipleship is more than believing in Jesus. True discipleship is to be like Jesus and to do like Jesus. There are many things that, that we can discuss today. There are many things that, that, that we would like to talk about. There are many classes and topics that we would love to get into and podcasts and all of those things, and they're important. But we must remember that Christ didn't call us to argue forever or to agree on everything. Christ called us to love him with all our heart, to love our neighbor, and to make disciples. You know, I am very happy about the reversal of Roe versus Wade by the Supreme Court this week. I'm happy because I think that it restores a right that had been taken away. It's a right for babies in the womb to have life, to live. But you know, as we rejoice about that, as we rejoice for the victory of pro-life and the sanctity of human life, we must remember that more than wanting to have the right laws, we want to have the right heart. We, to, to be pro-life means more than just being happy that the law is in place. To be pro-life means to love people, to walk with those who are hurting, to, to help those who are struggling, to stand in the gap, to, to find forever families for children, and to do so much more. See, that's where you sort out the immature and the mature. The immature are happy with the basic rules. They've checked all their boxes. But the mature understand that loving God with all your heart, that loving your neighbor as yourself, and that making disciples of all nations is something that continues to go on. We continue to grow in that. The evidence of Christian maturity is not just believing the right things, but is doing the right things. The evidence of Christian maturity is not just about the right beliefs, but it is about the right spirit with which we talk, with which we conduct ourselves where we love God, love our neighbor, and make disciples. And so the question for me, for you today is, how are you growing towards maturity? How is your heart reflecting the spirit of Christ? How have you grown in the knowledge of Christ since last summer? How are you growing in obedience to the faith? How have you gone from believing the right things to doing the right things, to live in the right way? Church, let us not stay behind. Let's not get complacent. Let us not become so self-absorbed or so threatened by the culture around us. Let us not be consumerist church attendees. But let us press on toward maturity. How do we do that? Well, here's the third thing that I want to say to you today. Is that we need to be anchored by the promise. How can a persecuted church like the one in the first century press on 
How can a believer who is undergoing trials press on? How can disciples who are struggling press on? I'll tell you how, by having an anchor. The Jewish Christians of the first century, they needed an anchor for their faith. And you and I who follow Jesus, we need an anchor for our faith today. We're in the midst of this sea that moves and these waves that rise, these changes that happen, these storms that, that come. And in the midst of the uncertainty, in, in the midst of the change, in the midst of the shifting, we need an anchor. We need something that will give us security and assurance. In the midst of turbulent waters, we need an anchor. And I'm here to tell you today, the anchor is Christ. He is our high priest. He is the fulfillment of God's promise. He's our forerunner, the anchor of our soul. Let's finish this chapter, chapter verse 13 of chapter 6. Reads like this, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no, no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what he said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. In Christ, we have a better promise. In Christ, we have the fulfillment of God's promise. Christ is the anchor that can make us secure. For the Jews, Abraham was the father of faith. God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham believed that promise and he received it. Israel was in part a fulfillment of God's promise. God kept his promise to Abraham. And we are part of that promise. You see, when God called Abraham, he said, I'm going to make a nation out of your descendants. And I will make it the type of nation that will bless all nations. And I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to lead you to a land that I will show you. And we call that the promised land. Those were promises that God made to Abraham. And in that land, God would put his people and God would show his presence and would display his glory for all the nations to see. In that land, God would pitch his tent called the tabernacle. And there in the tabernacle, people could worship him. There was a, an outer court where God's people could draw near to God, but there was a holy place where only the priests could go in on behalf of the people. And then beyond the holy place, there was a holy of holies, an inner sanctuary where only the high priest could go once a year on behalf of the people. That was the promise of God to make a nation out of his descendants, to give him a land, 
to make his presence, his power know so that these people will show who the true God was. Now here's the challenging thing about when God makes his promise to Abraham. When God promises that his descendants are gonna be a nation, Abraham and Sarah have no children. Not only do they not have children, but they're old, beyond childbearing age. And God says to them, to this old childless couple, I'm gonna make a nation out of your descendants. And I'm gonna give you a land. But Abraham didn't even know where that land was. He didn't have a destination. He didn't have an itinerary. He didn't have a GPS. He didn't have a, 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 a title, a deed to the property. All Abraham had was God's promise. That's all he had. No evidence, no proof, just a promise. Sometimes that's all we get. A promise. But Abraham believed and he was counted to him as righteousness. Isaac was born in a miraculous way. Then from Isaac came Jacob and from Jacob came 12 sons. The 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. And God gave those 12 tribes a land but not before there were 400 years in captivity. You see, God did keep his promise, but it was in his own timetable. Abraham and Sarah, they thought that they knew how God should keep his promise, and they tried to help God. Be careful when you try to help God instead of waiting on God. But God kept his promise. And in God's timing, God's way, God fulfilled it. Israel was supposed to be a blessing to all the nations. So the greater fulfillment of the promise to Abraham came in Jesus. Jesus came through Israel. He was the Messiah for Israel. But the Bible says that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. When Jesus went to the cross and he opened his arms, he opened his arms to not just one nation but all nations so that they would come to know the real, true God, the God of Israel. Through Israel, all nations were blessed in Christ. That's the fuller meaning. And because Jesus became our high priest, the Bible says he's gone into the holy of holies. He's gone into the inner sanctuary. When Jesus died at Calvary, that same day, that same afternoon, as all kinds of supernatural things took place when he was hanging on the cross, one of the things that took place was that the temple curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the tabernacle, from the rest of the temple, was torn. And it opened the way. It was God's way of saying that the death of Jesus now offers us entrance into the presence and the throne of God by one and only one high priest. His name is Jesus. That every person who trusts in him, that every person who believes God's promise in him can have access to God without the need for another mediator. Jesus entered the Holy of Holies once and for all. He doesn't have to do it every year. He doesn't have to do it every Sunday. He did it once and for all. Not only did he 
tear the temple curtain in Jerusalem. The Bible says that he's in the inner sanctuary beyond eternity. In the spiritual realm, in the bigger sense, all of what Israel had were symbols and shadows of the greater reality that exists in heaven. And Christ is that fulfillment. And there's still more to be experienced in that fulfillment. But what we know today is that God's promise is ours in Christ. God kept his promise to Abraham. God kept his promise in Christ and, and God will keep his promise to the end. Whatever he's promised to us, he will keep it. If we want something to be afraid of, be afraid of staying where you are, be afraid of going back. But if you want something to be confident about, be confident in Christ. He's the anchor that holds beyond the curtain. We can't see it yet, but it is sure and it's certain he is our forerunner. We have a better promise in him. We have a fuller promise. So let's anchor our faith in him. Let's rest in the fact that Jesus has already gotten there and he's waiting for us. Let us press on toward a fuller life in faith, in endurance, in patience, in maturity, confident of his promise. I want to end by quoting the lyrics of a Christian hip-hop artist by the name of Toby Mac. And it's called Help is on the Way. It says, it may be midnight or midday, never early, never late. He's going to stand by what he claimed. Live long enough to say, I heard your heart, I see your pain. Out in the dark, out in the rain, feel so alone, feel so afraid. I heard you pray in Jesus' name. Help is on the way, rounding the corner. Help is on the way, coming for you. Help is on the way. Sometimes it's days, sometimes it's years. Some face a lifetime of falling tears. But he's in the darkness. He's in the cold. Just like the morning, he always shows. Well, I've seen my share of troubles, but the Lord ain't failed me yet. So I'm holding to the promise, y'all, that he's rolling up his leaves again. Don't you know it? He's rolling up his leaves again. I can see him rolling, rolling up, rolling up. Help is coming. Rolling up his leaves again. It may be midnight or midday. He's never early nor ever late. He's going to stand by what he claimed. I've lived enough life to say, help is on the way. Pastor Lorenzo believed that. Do you believe that? Do you believe the promise of God? Are you ready to anchor your faith in Christ so that you can press on? Press on toward maturity, full-hearted, full steam ahead, loving God, loving your neighbor, and making disciples. What is your commitment? What is your response to God today? Maybe for the first time, you need to give your life to Jesus. For the first time, you need to trust in him fully, not in your works, not in your religion, not in anything other but the work of Christ on the cross. And you can say, today, I make him Lord and Savior. Today, that anchor will become mine. Today, that assurance, I'm going to claim it. Maybe that's what you need to do today. Maybe you want to follow in believer's baptism or join the church, join a group. Maybe you need to make a commitment to grow in maturity. You've been stuck. You're in a spiritual rut and today said no more. 
I'm not going to stay here. I'm going to press on. Father, I thank you today for your word. I thank you for your promise. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the spirit of God that is working right now in the hearts of people. As your spirit tugs at our hearts, as you call us to commitment to faith, help us to respond. Father, help us to say yes. Help us to trust you, to believe you, to believe your promise, to anchor our faith in Christ right now for whatever is next. Would you do that right now, Lord?